Hello, my fans, friends. Welcome to the Rich Terring podcast feed, powered by ACAS Plus. Thanks to everyone who's come to see the Can I Have My Ball Back tour so far. It's been going really well. I've got a four-star review in The Standard, four-star review in The Telegraph, who once called me the worst comedy experience of the year, so that's a turnaround. Uh, people have been coming, people have really been enjoying it, and it's getting better and better. The only gigs this week are both in Pocklington, the town I was born in, near York. Uh, there's a couple of tickets left for the evening show and a few more tickets left for the matinee, I think about 4.30. But love to see you there, Yorkshire. Pop along, check richardherring.com slash ballback slash tour or richardherring.com slash gigs to see if I'm coming near to you. There are tickets left for nearly every show in the tour. I think Norwich has sold out. Uh, and a couple of gigs in London could do with your support as well. Anyway, please listen to the podcast. Do spread the news about the podcast to your friends. Listen as much as you can. Numbers are slightly down, which may affect the future of this podcast. So just leave it playing, even if you're not in the room. Love you. <laughs> now sit back, relax, and enjoy whatever it is you're going to listen to. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Uh, welcome to yet another Rahalastaba Book Club. I'm delighted to be, enjoyed, to be joined by Stephanie Merritt, who is going to be telling us about her fantastic novel storm hello stephanie hello how are you how are you oh i'm good i'm yeah i'm good too let's talk <laughs> let's talk good. in unison all the time for the rest of the podcast that'll be fun um for people who don't know who you are i, I know a little bit about you but um who are you stephanie merritt tell me a bit about yourself <laughs> is that on an existential level <laughs> it can uh, be you can take it out well i am a um journalist and author i write for The Observer. I used to work on their books pages. Uh, I used to be the um, deputy literary editor on The Observer for many years, and I was also their comedy critic, which is how you and I met many years ago. Um, And I then, well, I was writing novels as well, uh, kind of while doing that. Um, And then about, when was it? 2008, I... um, I started writing a historical thriller series, which uh, meant that I could give up the day job. So I still do little bits of journalism and reviewing here and there, but I'm mostly writing full time now. So I wrote um, this historical series under a pseudonym, uh, SJ Paris. And then I also do contemporary thrillers under my own name, which is what the, the most recent one is. 
So that and is... what's the what's the thinking behind having a pseudonym for for the historical stuff? Is there a reason for that, or is it just uh, good fun? No, there is a reason, and it, it really is as basic as uh, marketing. It's got I'd done before I started doing those. I had written three books under my own name, and they were quite quite different types of books, um, and. I was also writing as a journalist under my own name. And so to launch the series, it's often in publishing, it's, it can just be a bit easier if you're completely changing direction. Yeah. Um, sometimes to launch you almost as a, an entirely new author. So that's what we did. And, and the pseudonym is, um, it's more obvious, or it's obviously gender neutral. So we hoped yeah. that the, the series would kind of appeal, um, have a broader appeal than perhaps uh one written you know just um that was obviously under a woman's name uh and uh yeah and it, it's also enabled me to have kind of two different strands of my writing so so i can do these so when people pick up an sj paris novel they know that it's going to be one of these historical thrillers and sure. um uh and that, yeah that's a shame though isn't it it's weird that in this day and age that's still does that mean you think the the stephanie merritt novels are more aimed at women or is or is is you don't it doesn't matter for, for these ones well, it's sort of weird that it matters i'd like to think it doesn't matter and in fact there's been a lot of discussion about this because um the women's prize which happened last week they had a big campaign this year around getting more men to read books by women because um i mean obviously you're very enlightened but uh there's a lot of men out there who statistically a lot of data shows there's been a lot of data on um book buying and and uh that kind of thing those sort of demographics um that men will uh predominantly buy books by other men and in fact it was interesting because last week this women's prize campaign also coincided with lots of gift guides around father's day and uh somebody you know i saw a few people on social media commenting that um you know most of the father's day book-related gift guides were all recommending books by other men. So, um, And I've certainly noticed that when I do book festivals, the the audiences for the historical series are pretty much 50-50, um, men and women. And when I do the books, the, the more contemporary ones, they tend to be almost overwhelmingly um, women. And that might just be right. because of the content. But I think also it does, you know, I, I think just um, instinctively a lot of men will you know pick up a, a book that looks as if it's a bit more kind of masculine or a bit more manly and i think with these books they've they've designed them very well to kind of try and appeal across the board so there, there is nothing manly about reading that's <laughs> what men have to realize <laughs> they're already feminized by even picking up a book at all of any kind even andy McNabb. so uh, no that's, uh, that's do any of the men walk out when they sit and shout at you when they realize you're not uh, a a sort of bespectacled old historian man, as, as well, they maybe imagine. They, they haven't walked out. Now, usually they're quite pleasantly surprised, although I was at Hay recently and there was a, a guy in the audience who said, um, and this did surprise me because I've, I've written six of these books now and yeah. there's always been a picture of me on the cover. It's not. It's never been a secret that it's a pseudonym. So, um, yeah. they, so, so this guy was in the audience and he piped up at the end and said, you know, I've read all of your books and I had no idea until today that you were a woman. Um, and I'm hoping that he hadn't met me in the past. Uh, but no, I, I asked him how that could be. And he said, well, because I read on a Kindle. So on a Kindle, you don't get the jacket. You don't really see, yeah. you're not looking at the author's name every time you pick it up. Um, and it just hadn't sort of occurred to him to, to do any kind of, you know, biographical digging. So I thought that's interesting because obviously Kindles do change the way we yes. relate to a book. Um, yeah. So that, yeah, I hadn't realised that that was, you know, that was still possible, but. Yeah. 
Um, so let's let's talk about um, the new book Storm uh, again. When when you're doing when we're talking about novels and thrillers with lots of twists and stuff, and I'm obviously uh, it's uh, it's important not to give away too much of what's yeah. going to happen, which makes it a little bit harder to talk about. But how do you uh, sort of pitch and describe? Uh, this book? Um, well, I kind of like the term um, psychological suspense, which is, it, it's sort of, a, it's not a classic murder mystery. There is a murder in it. Um, and the nature of the murder is, you know, I hope kind of uh, hidden until um, quite late in the book. So it, it, it's a kind of a murder mystery in that sense. But my, I suppose my um, model for this book and the the one that I did uh, as myself that preceded it. Um, I've always loved Ruth Rendell's Barbara Vine novels, and they tend to, they're kind of what I would call psychological suspense. And what she does with those is to sort of flip the idea of a detective story. So you're not um, with the policeman or woman who is trying to solve the crime. You are with the people who are in the midst of the crime. So, you know, either people who have committed a crime and are trying to cover it up or people who have been accused of a crime or have in, are in some way associated with it. So the police are kind of on the other side and you're, and you're there, you know, in the midst of um, a group of people in this case, in the case of Storm, uh, a group of old university friends who've gone away for a weekend anniversary house party in France and, um, and then an unexpected guest turns up and it starts to bring to the surface uh, secrets and, and lies that have been buried among this group for the last 20 years. So that's sort of the idea of it. Um, is- yeah, and they're quite, they're quite, and even the, the, the character we're sort of following, um, Joe, is, is quite a flawed and not particular, I mean, out of all of them, she's a bit more likeable than most <laughs> of them, uh, but of the older generation anyway, uh, but uh, she's not particularly uh, likeable or, or, um, morally, well, it's a bit. She's a bit morally ambiguous, I suppose, yeah. with, with everything else they go on, which is quite interesting to have a to have a sort of protagonist that's that we can't fully get behind. I, I like it. Yeah, I mean, I, I was. <laughs> I think my um, editors were concerned about that, and it is one of those questions that comes up about you know how much do you have to like the protagonist of a book in order to be rooting for them um, or, or of a drama. You know, you think about um, something like Breaking Bad and, you know, Walter White does some terrible, morally terrible things. And yet we are kind of on his side because we've been following him. And um, I wanted that with this group of people. I mean, they are all um, extremely flawed and and yet they are people who kind of in their public life, they've all got sort of relatively high status jobs. And they're people who in their public life would be seen to be certainly by the right wing press as kind of do gooders. You know, there's a kind of there's a human rights lawyer. There's a, uh, a TV producer who makes dramas about the underclass. And uh, and then there's a kind of uh, AI tech billionaire and a lefty liberal journalist. So they're all people who would be seen as kind of doing, you know, doing good in the world or believing themselves to do good. And yet they've got these um, kind of deep moral flaws in their own characters and things that they have covered up and lied about. Um, and Joe, I was interested in in writing about um, somebody who is in, she's kind of still in the shadow of grief. She's lost her husband. That's not a spoiler. She's She was, you know, widowed before the book starts. And it's a year after the death of her husband that uh, she goes away with his old group of friends on this holiday and um 
and she's still grieving. So she's somebody who is kind of, she's not got a huge amount of kind of impetus or, or get up and go. She's still in the really quite sort of sunk in her grief, um, which was something that interested me. And she is also someone who has perhaps put aside her own qualms and doubts about this group of people because she likes the perks of kind of being involved in that group. Um, and I, I just like the idea of uh, writing a heroine, in particular a woman who's not necessarily, um, she doesn't necessarily live up to the sort of the idea of, you know, how women should behave or the, this idea of being likable. She is a kind of prickly character. Um, and yeah. yet I do, I do have kind of, I do have great sympathy for her because I think she's somebody who has been, um, as the book goes on, it, it's revealed she's been in a relationship that was quite um, controlling, but in a way that was so subtle, she wasn't even a, maybe aware of it herself. Um, mm. You know, that she has been kind of stifled in this marriage and has put up with all sorts of things that she probably shouldn't have. Um so yeah, I think it's a good it's a good question. There's been a lot of debate in recent years about whether because it's a question that's not often asked about male characters, you know, about whether they should be likable. Um and I sort of I think she is sympathetic, but then, you know, I, I hope that other people will find I think she find... is. I mean she is. But it just, you know, it veers between because also the obviously a storm, the younger character who comes in and and causes the storm. It's very clever what you've done. That. <laughs> um is uh, you know, is is pretty likable, but of course, you know everyone's suspicious about what's going on, and and as a reader, you're you're wondering what's going on. She seems very friendly, and but there's there's clearly something happening uh, going on there. So, um, and and Joe is sort of vacillating between the different groups, isn't she? Sort of cha- almost changing allegiances, and yeah, as as she goes. I mean, she likes so. I, let me talk, uh, tell you about a bit about. Oops, sorry, I'm just going to close that window. Um, let me just tell you a bit about Storm, about where that came yeah. from, because um, that was inspired by not not the plot, but the the idea of this uh, the arrival of a character into a group of people who whose arrival, I suppose, almost like Mary Poppins, kind of causes um, it causes people to be shaken out of their routine and maybe out of their roles that they've been playing for a long time in that group. Um, and there's a novel, uh, I think it was 2005 it came out by Ali Smith um, called The Accidental. It's not one of her more famous books, but I really love it. And it's got it's about this very dysfunctional family that go on a summer holiday to a not very attractive bit of Norfolk. And on the first day, this very attractive young woman turns up in the house and this family is so dysfunctional that they all think she must be, they they just don't communicate. So they all think she must be something to do with one of the others. So nobody really right. challenges her. So she just kind of stays. And yeah. gradually she, I mean, she is almost like a sort of slightly witchy Mary Poppins figure because she does uh, start to kind of resolve these tensions. She, she sort of, with each member of the family, she, she, behaves in a slightly different way and kind of brings, you know, she begins to resolve these, these tensions that are on these problems that are between them. And I've always loved that book, but I've always thought what would happen if it was a darker story? If, you know, if, if this charismatic person who turns up in the middle of a group and everybody kind of likes them and, but is also sort of, you know, unsettled by them. Um, What if that person had a kind of malign intent rather than, you know, ha- having come to kind of heal things had actually come to kind of cause more strife. So that's where that the idea of that came from. I've always liked that that idea of a group being sort of thrown into disarray 
Yeah. And there's a few things at play because obviously there's the age difference. There's a, you know, a very attractive woman coming in and the way that the men and the women uh, react to her. But it's also a lot about class. Even for Joe, she sort of feels like she doesn't fit in particularly with her, which is a weird, you know, it's a weird thing for her. She is a sort of outsider. That's a weird thing to go back to the group of friends that sort of aren't really your, your group of friends that you're ex, you know, you're a, your dead husband's group of friends. Yeah. So there's, there's, a, there's a lot of, I mean, I think that, I suppose that's very interesting the way, I mean, I, you know, I, it always seems that posh people and rich people come out very badly in fiction, that they're all kind of, <laughs> they're all kind of sparely, uh, you know, hypocritical, hypocritical and, uh, and a bit stupid as well, really, generally. I mean, I think there's a, there's a bit more to it in this, in this book, but uh, do you think that's a fair portrayal <laughs> of the rich or are they actually, they never seem to be happy in anything, but if you look at um succession or anything like that yeah. or, the, or, or the crown they're all everyone's really unhappy these people were not totally unhappy but they seem to seem yeah i think they are all quite unhappy in their in their yeah. different ways i think it's um yeah it's interesting maybe that is a kind of maybe there's a sort of um slight resentment on the part of uh people who are writing this kind of stuff yeah. like, you know <laughs> those of us who are writing that we want to believe <laughs> well i suppose it's the same reason people read um things like uh, you know so those celebrity magazines you know we we like the idea i think we the public like the idea that somebody who appears to have everything is actually not happy it hasn't made them happy that they're they're kind of just as um burdened as the rest of us or or just yeah. as jealous or insecure or whatever it might be um and yeah I, yeah i think i mean there's something very there's something very appealing about showing people who appear to have everything because part 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 of it is you can do that sort of lifestyle porn thing where you show as in succession, you know, or yeah. um, you describe their beautiful houses. And um, and I think we all love the idea of a glimpse into that, the world of the 1%. Um, and, but I think there is certainly uh, also some truth in the idea that um, being in a position of influence and a position of power can corrupt. Obviously, it doesn't happen to everybody, but it can corrupt certainly your sense of, values your sense of what you're entitled to or what you can get away with and i mean as we have seen relentlessly over the past few months the idea that you know there is a certain class of people who believe themselves to be not subject to the rules that that everybody else is supposed to abide by and that if they choose to do something simply by virtue of them having done it um that that makes it all right or they can it can be justified or excused in some way um so that i think is what I wanted to show with this group of friends, you know, they have all come, well, they haven't all necessarily come from privilege, but they've all ended up uh, by virtue of, you know, talent and patronage and um, good education. They've all ended up in positions of, of some privilege in society. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and Joe, you know, that's part, partly why I was interested in her perspective and why she's um not quite sure where her loyalties lie in this group because she has always felt like an outsider. She She's always kind of felt that she doesn't quite belong in this group. Um, and she's very attracted to this outsider storm who comes in, who also doesn't belong, but has, but has more sort of boldness um, than Joe has ever had to challenge these people and their values and their, um, the way they treat others. And so yeah. there's a kind of admiration for, yeah. for her in that. No, it's very, it's very good. And do you think is there a little bit of you in Joe? Is that in you know you? Are, I mean, it, it reminded me of myself being at university and feeling 
that everybody else was super <laughs> posh and I'd, and I'd been allowed in by accident. And I sort of, you know, was overwhelmed by the confidence of all the kind of public school kids. And obviously you've also worked in in journalism, so you may have met uh, a certain characters <laughs> that, that may have been journalists and then gone on to be prime minister. I, you know, no, no. <laughs> um, uh, but so you've, you've certainly met people who've gone on to be bigger deals as, as starting in journalism and whatever. So is, is there a bit of you in there? Is, 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 is that more closer to you, that character? Or? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I mean, certainly that sense of feeling a bit like an outsider. Uh, I think most writers have felt that at one time or another. And um yeah, I was aware. I mean, I had a, um, I, I didn't have a group of friends like that at university. My my friends were actually lovely. Um, but <laughs> I definitely did meet people like that. And certainly working in the media for, for years, you do um, come across these little closed circles of people with immense privilege. And um, yeah, and, and feeling, you know, that I, I don't quite belong here. I'm never going to fit in here. And um so I suppose there were aspects of that as well. And uh, an aspect of, you know, I had um, recently been through a breakup. So I was not, I mean, not a bereavement in that way, but I was kind of in the process of, of um, thinking about that a lot. And and so I suppose I channeled some of that into the idea of Jo um, finding herself on her own uh, unexpectedly um, at that point in her life with a young child. So, um, yeah, and, and I, well, part of the appeal for me of writing the, these contemporary books is that I can write um, more obviously about the lives of women, which I can't do necessarily in the historical books. I mean, obviously, there were kind of interesting women around in the um, 16th century, but to to write about the concerns of women of my age and my, my friends and things that I see people I know going through, um, and those kind of issues, it's, it's much, obviously much easier to do that with a contemporary book. Yeah, and it's interesting. Um, I think again, the, the the older characters who would perceive themselves as being feminist, sort of shutting the door basically on this younger <laughs> and, and very threateningly beautiful woman. I wonder whether all men are, are <laughs> as, as shallow as to, to be. I mean, maybe they are. Uh, yeah. I know I am, we, but we, I'm just wondering whether <laughs> I wonder whether all. <laughs> I just wonder whether all men uh, would be would be as easily. Uh, uh, beguiled by by beauty maybe that's true uh, but it's interesting that the female characters are, uh, are flawed in that way that they sort of I mean it's very realistic yeah, as well. I, I wanted to write about that because yeah. um you know it's interesting to be I suppose kind of in midlife now and to see um the way that uh women in their 40s you know there's that kind of looking around the group of people that I know and, you know, for people that I maybe don't know so well, but I um, follow on social media, there's all those debates about, you know, um, aging gracefully and naturally, or whether you, you know, people have a lot of work done and whether that's feminist and all of these questions. And, and so much of it is to do with, you know, hanging on to that kind of sexual power and what happens when somebody who doesn't have to work for that, somebody who is 22 and gorgeous kind of comes into the middle of your social circle where um you know all the men in the group are coupled up but uh but they're but obviously none of these marriages are particularly happy and so all the wives you know that kind of jealousy that kind of envy of you know what you used to be and what somebody else ha now has effortlessly because I think that's the thing that you know for women you do become very conscious of when you when you get into your 40s and when I handed in the first draft of this book my agent 
read it and he said god but the men are all so awful and i said <laughs> yeah <laughs> and um so no you're right i'm sure not not all hashtag not all men um are, are as, i don't think be, i don't think it'd be as, as interesting a novel if all the men were going yes we'll respect you and it's lovely to see you yeah well and also <laughs> that that is an interesting thing because i didn't you know it wasn't particularly um written with it with a an eye to kind of making a big point about me too. But um, the men that I'm writing about, they're in their 40s. They are, I suppose, of um, our kind of generation where you've had to, they've had to make a quite a rapid shift from what was acceptable for, you know, the, when the guy's 10 years older than them, when they started work, the kind of behaviour that was acceptable to what guys 10, you know, 15 years younger would, you know, now consider to be completely out of order. And yeah. so they're that generation that's sort of stuck in the middle where they did, you know, grow up understanding, knowing about feminism, but um, it was still okay to kind of, there were certain behaviours were still considered, yeah. you know, not and, as, as shocking as they are now. So And and for the story and, for the story and the book, it, you know, it is, uh, it's it makes sense that they, <laughs> that they would behave like, they have form, let's say, yeah. in, in terms of yeah. behaving that way. So it's, you know, it's, there's obviously an element of justice to it, although do we ever get justice for these kind of things? Which you know, it's I, I like I, I very much like the fact that it's uh, there's a lot of ambiguity in this book, and there's a you know that that what what happens might not be exactly what you hopes happens, or might be you know it might not be fair, or it might not be so. It's it's you know it's 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 very true to life, I think, and and you kind of you hope that these most of these guys will get their comeuppance but whether they will yeah. or not is, oh, well, is sort of hanging in the air thank you and and thank you for not kind of giving away too much it is difficult to talk about this stuff but yeah <laughs> but I wanted it I didn't want it to be all kind of neatly wrapped up where you know no. everybody who has behaved badly gets um you know it has to pay for it at some point because that that kind of isn't how the world works necessarily and um no. some of the you know, some of the guys who have a more sensitive conscience have obviously been kind of troubled by that over the years and have been suffering for it in their own ways, but they haven't. Yeah. They, the idea that kind of justice is all neatly packaged up because, you know, when you think about it, that, that isn't very often, isn't how that works, particularly no. with kind of um, anything to do with, with um, sexual misbehavior. Um, no. And, and, you know, I love that Joe is, you know, has to, you know, make choices as well, and maybe doesn't make the choices she would hope she would make. Mm. So you know, because the self in that's why that's why it's it carries on, isn't it? Because people have to think of that. You know, everyone has to think of their own selfish interests and their own that, that their own lives going ahead, and and so you you do end up making these massively compromised moral judgments. Well, yeah, and I think a lot of that is to do with. Um, I, I certainly wanted it in the book to be to do with people making choices about how something will affect their children because i think there's a perhaps we're a bit more understanding in a sense of um uh you know somebody doing something for a purely selfish reason for selfish gain and somebody making a choice that perhaps we might not necessarily agree with because it is a way of protecting their child and i think we could all you know i like the idea of trying to think myself into that um yeah. into that mindset you know how far would i be prepared to go to to protect you know my child if if um 
if I was put into that yeah. position. And I think, you know, that's something we've all kind of had to think about. Um, yeah, it's no, it's very, it's very, it's, you know, it's a thing that I was, I was left thinking about it for, for a long, you know, you're thinking about it days later, which is always great, great with a book. And uh, no, it's, it's, it's really terrific. It's very gripping. You know, you, you, you can't really second guess it. I was trying to second guess it and I didn't second guess it. So, well, not entirely. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun and it's, and, and, and the characters are terrific. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. In the in the, did you go to France to research this uh, book? Was that part of the jolly of it that you got to go out and drink lots of wine? Well, I would have loved to, but I was writing this in the middle of um, all the lockdowns, uh, which um, so I had planned to. So it, it's based on a real place that I visited with my son uh, when he was four. So that's sixteen right. years ago, um, and. Uh, Although I have to, every time I say this, I have to make very clear that the, these terrible people who own the chateau are not based on um, <laughs> the real owners who are lovely, uh, who are currently um, listening to the book on audio. <laughs> and, uh, I think they like it. Um, but they, yeah, so they, 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 it is a real place. It's kind of in the Bordeaux uh, region, this beautiful chateau that um, was bought up and bought and kind of done up by um, an English couple. And I stayed there and I liked the idea of it being somewhere that's, um, it's a bit remote. Everybody's been sort of taken out of their their everyday life, so you can't just kind of hop on a train to back to London. Where, you know, they're and they're in a different jurisdiction, so they're not quite sure what is, um, you know, what's expected of them in terms yeah. of what they're allowed. To, oh, I'm trying not to give too much away, but you know, yeah, in terms of you know, so it's you know, they've got to deal with the French police at, at some point, but they, you know, they're outside of their everyday lives. Um, and so I did do a lot of, uh, fortunately, Google 
street map is absolutely brilliant. So I did a lot of places that I had visited before. I was able to just go on Google Maps and kind of walk down those streets with the little camera um, yeah. all the way through lockdown. So uh, I, I, yeah, I will go back and visit at some point. But it was a nice way as well of, you know, while I was stuck in my house um, in Surrey, being able to kind of imagine myself back into a French vineyard. Yeah, very nice. And it, it feels, you know, when you write, it feels like it could be a film. Is that something that you're, when you're writing a book like this, are you thinking, right, well, let's set this in a beautiful state <laughs> home with a very pretty young woman in it? And, you know, and there's, I mean, there's a lot, you can really, there's a lot of action really as well in, in various locations. Um, so a lot of drama. So it, would, it feels like it could be very filmic. Is that is that something that you think about when you're writing a novel or are you concentrating on that and not thinking about the huge yeah, movie it, advances you can get. <laughs> it depends really. No, I think I think certainly with the contemporary ones, um there is I suppose there's there's always now one eye on the the kind of potential TV series. Um and there is as we said before, there is a, an appetite I think for stories about lives of the the rich and famous yeah. and where you can, you know, well it's what one of the things we love about succession is that you get to look inside all these kind of extraordinary houses that most of us would never have access to. So um so there is a bit of that. So I wanted it to be kind of visually attractive and then yeah, I wanted um you know, the all the characters are kind of meant to be good looking as well and 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 you've got this very charismatic kind of but I think there's some good female parts in it as well so yeah, uh, hopefully if somebody would like to turn that into a series <laughs> I'd be delighted um it, it's I suppose it is a bit more um I've got a bit more of a sense of kind of dramatizing it with these books because when I do the historical series they're all written in the first person so you're much more inside one character's head which is harder I think to adapt that for the screen um mm. Whereas with these ones, you know, you've got a couple of different points of view and you can kind of shift the perspective a bit more. So I suppose it's got a slightly more of a dramatic potential in that way. Yeah, although I feel the historical ones, I haven't read all of those, but I have read a couple of those. I feel they are, um, that you know, that, that would surely be Oh, they're crying out for a, for they're, a they're, series, yeah. <laughs> Adaptation. No. Go for a movie, Stephanie. Don't don't settle for TV. Although TV's the well, big... Well, TV's where it's at now, because you can do, now. you know, you can, you can make something over several hours rather than just, yeah. uh, you know, 90 minutes. No. So, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and what's your right... What's, as, a, as a novelist, and you're obviously still doing some journalism, um, are you... Do you work all day on a novel? Do you sort of concentrate on a novel and then move on to other stuff? Are you... Are you, are you is it sort of a nine to five or are you, are you picking up hours here and there? No, I mean, I've, I've refined this system over many years and I still don't think I've really nailed, you know, but uh, I have figured out over the years that um, my, I do my best creative writing in the morning. So what I have to try and do is um, not look at any social media. I try and get to my desk by eight o'clock. I try to work eight till 12 um, without getting distracted by emails and um phone calls and things uh, and obviously that's much easier because my uh I've got an empty house now so um yeah so yeah my son's gone off to university so that's much easier now that I don't have somebody else in the house or um you know when he was smaller and I had to get him to school it wasn't quite so straightforward but um yeah. so now I try and work in the morning and I generally find if I can get uh a couple of thousand words done in the morning then that's about all my brain's got space for um yeah so uh, yeah, on a good day, I can do a couple of thousand words in you know That's in good. a good so morning's you... work, and then yeah, and then in the afternoon, I just sort of fanning around 
on Twitter and, um, you know, that sort of thing. And, and how much how much preparation is the book like? Have you got? Have you worked everything out before you start it, or are you someone who likes to be surprised by it? It feels like so so intricate. This one that you must have had a lot of this. No, yeah, I def- sure. definitely with this one. I wrote the first draft without really. I, I had a vague kind of notion of the outline right. of the plot, but I wrote it without really having mapped it out at all and without figuring right. out um, quite how it was going to end. Uh, which I think probably showed in the first draft. So I had to, there was quite a lot of rewriting to do with that. Um, so I then kind of came back to it and rewrote. And uh, and at that point, I had to figure out where the kind of, you know, how to build up the suspense a bit more, because I think that was missing in the first one. I just sort of wrote it straight through. Um, so, but with the, the historical, because they're more sort of obviously detective stories i do plan those a bit more thoroughly um yeah than i do with these ones so i i sort of work out you know i i always have to start with who's going to get murdered and why uh and then work out how many other red herrings i can throw in you know before um before people kind of get to get wise to who's who to, to who done it so i mean it's got that is so difficult right because especially i mean the people who read these kind of books like read a lot of books yeah. like this i'm imagining that they get so it must be that's what i've always when something has a twist in that you're not expecting or some or a plot that surprises you um it's quite impressive to achieve, <laughs> to achieve that sleight of hand i think when so when so many uh thriller books exist yeah and and you know crime readers are really smart you know they they like yeah. you say get some people who love that genre will have read a ton of crime novels and so you've you know the obvious twists or you've you've really got to steer clear of those because um you just don't want there's nothing more disappointing than kind of guessing what's going to happen early on in a book um and so sometimes I have uh I've got kind of three quarters of the way through a book and realized that I've made it too obvious and so I've done a little switcheroo where I've actually changed the person who I thought was going to be the murderer I've actually thought no let's not have that person let's change it so I have done that with some of the historical ones just um to try and kind of keep people guessing and I've got a brilliant brilliant editor at HarperCollins who um has been she uh, she's been editing crime books for um for a long time and she's worked with people like Colin Dexter and Val McDermott and you know all the big names um Mm -hmm. so I always feel if I can get a plot twist past her without her spotting it too early then I feel like I've won so you know because she's she's so well versed in this stuff so um yeah so it's often a question of kind of deciding who you think how you think it's going to go and then sticking an extra twist in right at the end because you know just to try and sort of keep it not too obvious yeah I mean there's twists in this and then but then you know I like it it's sort of you know there's twists all the way really and you sort of think oh mate I listened to the audio book so you've got an idea of you know you've got less of an idea how lot how long that's yeah. left in the book unless you're looking at how many more minutes it is so you kind of think oh this might be coming to an end and then there was you know that there was a lot more and, and some more surprises to to come after that bit so it is you know that, that's it's 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 great for that I've, I've enjoyed that and with the audiobook was there any que- you know you've got a, a lovely speaking voice was there any were you put off by the idea of having to do an Irish accent or would you never, would you never? Uh, I probably, <laughs> would you, you know, I am it? actually legally an Irish citizen now. So oh, um, I don't well. know whether I'm allowed to, no, I think it's still, I think, I don't know whether that would count as cultural appropriation. It probably would. Um, no, I, I've never been asked to do my own um, audiobooks, And I think it's just because there's so many different characters. I think it just makes more sense to get 
you know, professional actors to do it. And uh, I think it probably does with, in, in this case. And it's a, you know, it's a. It, I like. I love hearing the author read it, but I think there is sometimes an author reads it and they're you know, and you kind of notice. Yeah, <laughs> some speech impediment or something that is just in the back and just notice something that really starts getting on your nerves. So she is, a, it's a Victoria Fox reads yeah. this one, and uh, she's very, you know, she does get all the the characters very lightly as well. It's not like it, it's it's not overplayed in terms of getting the characterization, but you, you are you absolutely one hundred percent know who's talking. Yeah. And, and no, I think that, that's such a skill to do that with kind yeah. of radio drama or audio drama. It's um and, yeah. and it's a skill that I don't I don't have if I if I was just reading um a memoir I suppose it would be different but yeah it's it's yeah. different so I think you do need someone who's properly trained and I did find it again sometimes an audiobook of a novel can be you know you can get distracted or it's difficult to follow but it, this is it does work really well as a, as an audiobook as well for people who I, I always I well I prefer the audiobooks just in terms of I can do my reading when I'm doing you know yeah. other stuff so yeah. it means especially for especially for this podcast I can get a book a week done which I don't know I could do if I was having to sit down in my spare time and read them but, uh, but I do have That's I do have the book as so well. do you read do yeah. you listen while you're kind of out for walks or uh, yeah. in the car yeah, or- if I'm ex- it's, yeah, so like if I'm driving into London, that's like an hour there, an hour back, so you can get sort of a quarter way into a book, you know, in two sittings. Yeah. Or, and, and if I walk the dog for an hour or I go for a run for 45 minutes or whatever, then I think running's actually my best because often I, I sort of miss just having a walk with no noise because you, again, just in terms of coming up with your own ideas, yeah. <laughs> writing your own stuff, it's kind of nice. But then I, but some, I still do sometimes have an audio book on and then that's, you know, it makes me think about something else, and suddenly I go, "Oh, I'm going to have to rewind this and work out where I was because I've not listened for, yeah. for five minutes." As a result, yeah, of, uh, that's my that's my problem with audio stuff is that I just yeah. get I get distracted. So, um, yeah, yeah. But I found I found this one. You know, this one I don't don't think it was. I didn't have to rewind it at all. There was no there was no it was it was it was properly gripping. It does feel like, um, and I guess that's that's again it makes it feel slightly like it's it's got the it's got the structure of a of a drama if it works as a radio thing in itself then it's then it's um you know probably you know that tv show tv series can't be far away well, do, you, do you do you find the um having worked as a, a literary editor you obviously done a lot of reviewing and writing about books is that does that make it harder to write your own books as well or does that make it easier have you learned a lot from the mistakes of others and the successes of others or was it always something that was that that was the plan when you were when you were yeah, mainly I mean, a journalist, I, I started literary journalism because um, I I wanted to write books, but I you know that's very few people can kind of do that straight out of university, and also I don't actually think it's it's probably not great for you to do that straight out of university because it's you, you need a bit of life experience and you need to yeah. uh, be out in the world and meet people. I think just to um, to in other ways, otherwise your your second novel is about a person writing a novel which um, nobody wants. So. Um, so yeah, I started doing the journalism as a kind of as a day job while I was writing in the evenings. Um and I think you know, I yeah, I'd like to think I've been incredibly fortunate with, you know, the the authors that I've interviewed over the years and the authors that I've got to review. Um you can't help but learn from it and learn, you know, and which is not to say that um sometimes critics make the worst novelists, you know, when you actually try to do and and it's also in uh, literary journalism, it's one of those few um, art forms where the critics very often will, you know, be writing their own books. You know, you don't very often get opera critics who then decide to 
kind of take to the stage or or in, in you know in other um or comedy critics you know, comedy, when, exactly. when comedy comedy critics usually do it once and go i'll do a write an article about trying to be yes. a comedian and then <laughs> and then they can't obviously can't do it although i think fern brady started as uh started in, as, as a as, as trying yeah. it for, a, for an article but yeah but but who and she turned out to be extremely good but uh yeah, yeah no exactly uh, so i think it's one of the usually in an art form you sort of have a healthy respect for the fact that you can't actually do it yourself but um <laughs> a lot of literary critics are also writers and uh yeah I I hope that you know I'm I like to think that I can spot when I've come up with a really clunky metaphor and you know to and take it out and um uh and you know if I'm overwriting that's certainly a kind of um a failing of most um first novelists and I, I hope that I'm kind of getting better at weeding that stuff out as I go along um and is it as an as an author now? Are you at the position where the, your publishers publishers are saying, "Where's your next book? We'll take it," or are you still having to pitch? Are they are they coming? Say we want three more of uh, this series, yeah, or no? Do, they yeah. do with the with the historical series because that's yeah. um, sold very well. I do tend to get three book contracts, um, right. so that's nice. Uh, so you know, I, I sort of know that <clears throat> that I've got work up until you know twenty twenty five or whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, which is nice in a way it's it's you know that but i have enjoyed being able to do these two different have to have two different strands of it because it you know i think doing too much of the same thing does sort of stifle you a bit creatively um but at the same time you know to be able to do this and make a living at it is uh, it's a great um stroke of luck really that's <laughs> how i keep thinking about it you know i i think it is um it's a great privilege to be able to do that so uh yeah and it's that it's really nice that people um like the series enough to make that uh, a possibility so yeah, yeah i just keep going and, with uh, good well i'm delighted you are and it's i really recommend it it's a it's a really terrific uh novel uh this is storm uh, are you reading anything else or have you read anything recently that you would think would be worth recommending to people oh um what have i read recently uh i oh i've read a few things for for review that um let me tell you what can I tell you about. Uh, so there's a book that is coming out in. It's not out till September, but um, by an author called Erin Kelly uh, called The Skeleton Key, and she again writes these fantastic um, psychological suspense books, which are I suppose in, a, in quite a similar um, vein. And this one is about um, uh, it's about a, a an author who wrote, wrote a kind of treasure hunt book back in the seventies, which became a oh. huge kind of cult phenomenon. And then it's about kind of what the legacy of that and, uh, and what happens to his children and grandchildren um, when there are still these obsessive fans out there trying to solve the, the puzzle. It's based on a real book. Um, Is it based on Matt Masquerade? It sounds yes, like. that's Is the one. On that's why I couldn't yeah. remember the title. Yeah. So yeah, it's yeah. based on, on that. Um, I'm, I'm in a hundred percent for that book. That sounds oh, it's wonderful. Not, so you, she's, you've sold it to me. She's such a terrific <laughs> writer. So that's out in September. Um, and um, what else can I tell you about? Uh, there was a novel that was um, shortlisted for the Women's Prize last week, but it didn't win, but I think it should have done, called Great Circle by um, an American writer called Maggie Shipstead, which is about um, a female aviator in the 1920s in, in America. So that's um, a really brilliant historical novel too. Cool. Are you, do you mainly read novels or do you, is, that, is that what the, your interest lies as a reader or do you branch out into... No, I, mean, I do. With the history, you've got to do your historical yeah. research. <laughs> yeah, I do read quite a bit of nonfiction as well. You know, just kind of depends what I get um, 
you know, what I'm asked to review and what I've got to read for research. And, uh, you know, I sort of try to keep up with, um, with uh, current affairs, but there's not, um, I'll tell you what's on my, what's on my to be read pile. Um, that is a, a nonfiction, which is um, one of my Guardian colleagues, Jonathan Friedland, who also writes thrillers under a pseudonym, but he's got this new book called The Escape Artist, which is it's just come out about a week ago, I think. And it's the story of the first Jewish prisoner to escape from Auschwitz. Um, and it's All absolutely right. brilliant. It's been on Radio 4 recently yeah. as Book of the Week. And um, yeah, it, I've read some extracts from it. So that is, I'm waiting to get stuck into that as well. Terrific. Good. Well, look, um, everyone should buy your book, Storm, and go back and buy your many other... I mean, there's too many to mention. What's the, is, it, is it Heresy, the Heresy's first one? Heresy's the first one of the historical series, yeah. yeah. So uh, they um, should start... Yeah, do you have to read those in order? No, or you don't. I mean, they, there is a kind of narrative that goes through, yeah. but um, each one is its own self-contained mystery. So you can pick up, you know, you can pick up the most recent one, which is Execution, um, and you can start with that. Uh, so each of them, you know, it doesn't really matter if you've read the previous ones there's no spoilers so and so you're, you're doing some more of those are you, are you, have you got an idea for another novel outside of the series is, is there anything else or are you um for the moment waiting? i've got uh, two more of the historical ones under right. contract so i've got to i've got to do those over the next couple of years in fact i'm finishing hopefully finishing the seventh bruno novel by the end of this summer um and that'll come out next year and then uh and then i've got a couple of other ideas up my sleeve um Terrific. for what comes next so yeah Good. Oh, well, I'm so glad you're doing so well. And um, it's, uh, yeah, absolutely love to see you again. Uh, thank you very much to Stephanie Merritt. Thank you also to Chris Evans, not that one, for producing and directing. I think next week's guest is going to be Laura Lex talking about her uh, netball baseball oh, great. pivot, <laughs> which I have, I've started reading. It's a bit different than Storm, but it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very funny. So, uh, yes, I will look forward to that. Thank you very much, Stephanie. Thank you. 
would love to see you on the on the Can I Have My Ball Back tour if you can make it. Bye.